Welcome to Ask Peggy About Your Finances, because prosperity is so much more than money. Brought to you by writer, speaker, and certified financial planner, Peggy Doviak. Hello, and welcome to this week's edition of Ask Peggy Doviak About Your Finances, because prosperity is so much more than money. My name is Peggy Doviak, and I am a CFP certificate and a financial planner. This show has been created to help you really understand your money. So we talk about different kinds of financial issues, give you definitions, give you some current events that you might need to be aware of, all of it to help you prosper, to help you understand your money, because it can be very confusing. So I want to start today with the Bulls and Bears market report, and this is for the week that ended April 6th, and it's been a wild ride. However, at the end of the week, the Dow was only down about three quarters of a percent. The S&P 500 was down 1.38%. The NASDAQ was down 2%. So by far, the NASDAQ had the hardest time of it. Now, interestingly, gold was also down by about the same amount as the Dow Jones Industrial Average, about three quarters of a percent. So sometimes when people look at an investment like gold and they think, oh, it'll always go up when the market goes down, that's not necessarily true. Yes, gold is a risk hedge. It's a flight to safety. People go there. But you do need to be careful when you look at any one thing and think it's going to be the answer to all of your problems, because sometimes it isn't. Now, oil went up last week by 0.11%. It wasn't a big move. But again, it's probably a function of the discord in the Middle East. Anytime things are going poorly in the Middle East, oil tends to go up in price because of the fear of some kind of an upcoming shortage. Now, if you think this has been a crazy, crazy period in the market, you're not alone. Jack Bogle, the founder of Vanguard. Vanguard is a big investment firm. They create Vanguard mutual funds, which many people have heard of, do a lot of index funds, do pretty low cost. This is not an endorsement for Vanguard, but it's a very long-standing good company. And Jack Bogle is an absolute rock star in the investment business. He said he's never seen volatility so high. And he's been doing this for 66 years. In an interview on CNBC, he said that he's lived through two 50% declines over time and one 25% decline in a day, and yet he hasn't seen the market gyrate up so far and down so far in such short periods of time. So if you're feeling like this feels a little stressful, Jack Bogle agrees with you. However, he says that most of these movements are noise. He's not particularly worried, which gives me a lot of confidence because I trust his opinion a lot. But I think it's good to know that if you're feeling that like this does not feel normal, you're not alone. Jack Bogle's feeling it too. I'm feeling it too. We talked last week about creating a risk tolerance that you could live with. I'd like to reiterate that idea a little bit this week, that if this market is really driving you crazy, you might talk to your financial planner, see if you want to take a little bit less risk, 
and then make sure that those adjustments don't create a problem in retirement planning or long-term goal planning. But for the most part, if you've got a good time horizon, overreacting, reacting at exactly the wrong time is worse than doing nothing at all most of the time. Because what you don't want to do is sell after a bad day and then miss the gain and then buy when it's high to have the market go back down again. So when you have a market that's moving a lot every day, that choppiness can be very disconcerting. But remember that the Dow and the S&P were both down less than 1.5% for the week. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 and Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back. My name is Peggy Doviak, and this is the legislative update part of the show. If you listen to the show or the podcast on a regular basis, you know that I talk a lot about the DOL best interest or fiduciary rule. You also know that the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals vacated the entire rule a couple of weeks ago. But we've been talking about how states had picked up the mantle of requiring financial advisors to act in their clients' best interest, so it looked like it might be happening on the state level if it wasn't happening on the federal level. And in addition to this, the SEC has said that they will come out with a fiduciary rule this summer. Well, very recently, during the last week, some of the states that had been leading fiduciary efforts have begun to step backwards a little bit from it. Maryland was going to pass a law, but now they've made the decision that they're going to study it further to decide whether or not the fiduciary rule is really appropriate. New York, New Jersey, Illinois, all of these states had legislation that was pending or being considered, and they've all backed away from it after the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals rule. There's two possible reasons for this. The first reason is that they're concerned that within the state, the rule might have real issues from a um, legal perspective, because if the rule has been found not to be valid on a federal level, there could be a lot of state lawsuits and issues that could arise. So there may be backing away from it simply because the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals is backing away from it. They also might be backing away from it because they think that the SEC rule this summer will take care of it on a national level, and as a result, they don't have to take up state efforts. If the SEC were to require all financial advisors to be fiduciaries, then there really wouldn't be a need for this state legislation. Now, Financial planners who like the fiduciary standard are actually of a mixed mind about these state efforts because what could become highly confusing to the consumer is if the rules around being a fiduciary break at state lines. So I'm in Oklahoma, and if we passed a rule requiring advisors to be fiduciaries, but then if you move to Texas and the rule didn't apply, it could really lead to some consumer confusion. 
So I know some financial planners who are very good and very dedicated to the fiduciary rule, but they're not really excited about it being implemented in different ways in different states where maybe only some of the accounts would be under a fiduciary rule, like the DOL rule was, where other kinds of accounts might not be. And then you go to another state and nothing is covered. And then you go to another state and everything is covered. So the argument isn't bad. And I've gone to quite a bit of trouble here trying to explain why the argument isn't bad. I still have to say that personally, I am not a fan of just leaving the consumers out there with no fiduciary protection at all. I tend to think that a state effort, even if it's different in another state, would raise consumer knowledge more about the importance of working with someone who's acting in their best interest. However, right now, all we can do is sit back and watch One of the things you need to be careful of as a consumer is to always require that your financial advisor or financial planner, or for that matter, insurance agent, is acting in your best interest, which means that you should understand what you own. You should have good explanation from them about what you own. You should know what you're paying for it. You should know the compensation that the person received. And it isn't all about compensation, but unfortunately, some of the issues of advisors who haven't acted like fiduciaries has come down to compensation, where they got more money for recommending Fund A rather than Fund B. Or Fund A was having a contest, and the person who sold the most to Fund A got a cruise. These sorts of things happen fairly regularly in the financial services industry. So it's really important for the consumer to do their own due diligence, to do their own research, to really understand both what they own, why they own it, as well as then knowing what compensation the advisor or broker received for making the recommendation. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Ask Peggy Doviak About Your Finances show. I'm Peggy Doviak, and this is the Plan Your Prosperity section. So in this section, we talk about financial planning tips and look at definitions to try to help you understand holistically what's going on with your money. And I really want to start at the beginning today because I see clients who maybe I've known for years who still can have some confusion about how everything within their investment account is organized. For example, I know someone and I ask them how their investments were invested. In other words, what did they own? And this person said, I own an IRA. I said, that's great. How is the IRA invested? And she looked at me and she said, I just told you, it's invested in an IRA. So let's start out this conversation by talking about the two basic components of your investment account. And the first component is what kind of account is it? You can have a retirement account through your work. You might have some form of a pension plan 
through your work? You can have an individual retirement account, an IRA. Now, remember, IRAs can be normal where you take the deduction. Some people have IRAs where they can't actually deduct the contributions. And you can have Roth IRAs. All of those are kinds of accounts. If you work with a small business, you might have a simple account or a SEP account. Outside of retirement money, you can have after-tax accounts, just plain old individual or joint accounts. Or you might have an account called a transfer on death, where the assets automatically go to someone else at your death, sort of like your IRA beneficiary, except this is an after-tax account. You can also have accounts that are linked to a trust. Those are called trust accounts, creatively enough. So you have the kind of account that you own. Now, the kind of account that you own is like a wrapper. And the reason that it matters that you understand this is that wrapper will determine the taxability of the money. When is it taxed? How is it taxed? When do you have to take distributions? Or maybe you don't. So usually in retirement accounts, the contributions go in in pre-tax dollars. So the money comes out of your paycheck on the gross side of it, not the net side. It funds the account at work or it funds a deductible IRA or it funds a simple if it's coming from your account. And then you pay money, you pay taxes on that money when you take the distribution later. So it goes in in pre-tax dollars and it comes out and then you pay the taxes later. If you have a traditional, just normal individual account or a joint account or those TODs or those trusts, you pay the taxes on the money first. Then you have dividends and interest that you pay normal income taxes on, like at your standard income tax rate. And then if you sell something, you have capital gains. Remember, in your retirement money, you don't pay any taxes until you actually take money out of the account. In a taxable account, you pay capital gains tax every time you sell something. And we don't want to get too far into the weeds. And if you're listening on the radio, you may be saying, it's too late, you're too far into the weeds. But just know that the kind of account has more to do with taxes than anything else. And you can talk to your financial planner and find out what kind of accounts you have and how they're taxed. Very briefly, let me finish by saying the Roth IRA is this kind of weird hybrid where you put the money in an after-tax money, just like a normal account, except with the Roth, the growth is income tax free. So it's got a very specialized tax treatment kind of unique unto itself. But that's the wrapper that goes around the investments. The investments in your accounts have nothing really to do with the kind of account that the money is in. The investments will typically be made up of stocks or bonds or mutual funds or exchange-traded funds, or some other item where you're actually investing money directly into the market. And then all of these investments are held 
in the wrapper. But people often don't really understand what they own on the investment side either, because I'll ask someone, well, what do you own? I own mutual funds. Well, that's great. What kind of mutual funds? And they just give me this blank stare. Mutual funds are, again, I hate to use the word wrapper again, but they really are a wrapper that holds different kinds of investments. So a mutual fund may hold stocks, it may hold bonds, it might hold a combination of both. So sometimes you'll have a mutual fund or an exchange-traded fund, and it follows an index like the S&P 500. And so that fund lets you own all 500 stocks within the S&P 500 in a manner you can afford to buy the shares. You can also have funds that hold different kinds of bonds. Now, bonds are really not well understood by most, by most investors. When you own a bond, you actually own a loan. You have lent money to the institution that issued the bond. So if you own a government bond, you've lent the government money. If you own a corporate bond, you've lent a corporation money. And the bond riskiness is a function of how likely the person you loaned money to is likely to pay you back. And the amount of interest that you get becomes a function of the likelihood of repayment. So the more likely they are to repay you, the less interest you get. So these bonds can be bundled up. Generally, they come in categories like, like a blended bond fund that would be a lot of government and government agencies kinds of things. Corporate bond funds tend to be separate. You can buy international bonds. So all of those funds create this create a major category of investment within your portfolio. So if we start from the top, we see that we have the wrapper that's the kind of account. Then we have the holdings inside of that wrapper and we can either own the individual stocks, the individual bonds, other kinds of things, but more likely we own them in funds. So you can have stock funds, you can have bond funds, you can have blended funds, but it's really important to understand from the top down into what's inside the fund so that you know what you own, so that you know if it matches your risk tolerance level, so that if the market has had a really great day, you know how much of the market you participated in, or if the market's had an absolutely horrible day, you know how protected from that you were. So think about the wrappers, think about the layers, and the next time someone asks you what you're invested in, I want you to be able to tell them what it is. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Ask Peggy segment of the Ask Peggy Doviak About Your Finances show. 
And in this part of the show, people ask me questions. They can send them into my Facebook page, which is called Ask Peggy, or sometimes people ask me questions individually. So the first question that I want to answer today comes from Joshua, who says, I need some money from my IRA, and my advisor told me that I could take distributions from it without having to pay the 10% penalty, and I don't really understand it. Can you help? Well, Joshua, I can help, and let me start out by explaining to you what your advisor is recommending. It is possible to take a distribution from an IRA or some other kinds of retirement accounts that are called substantially equal periodic payments. You may hear this referred to as SEPP, or sometimes it's called by its tax code section of 72T. Now, what this lets you do is determine a distribution schedule on your IRA and take substantially equal periodic payments from that IRA, but there's a lot of fine print in this. If you follow all the rules, you do, in fact, get to avoid the 10% penalty. Now, remember, any time you're taking money out of an IRA, you don't get to avoid the income taxes. So you'll still pay income tax on the distribution, but you can dodge the 10% penalty. Probably the most onerous part of this is you must take these distributions for a minimum of five years or until you're 59 and a half, whichever is later. So if you were 50 years old and you were considering taking substantially equal periodic payments, you'd have to take them for nine and a half years until you're 59 and a half. If you're 58, you would have to take them until you're 63 because the five-year rule would apply there. You'd be 59 and a half in a year and a half, but it's whichever is longer. So the first thing this puts you into the situation of is having to take a lot of money out of your retirement accounts. And remember, your retirement accounts are called retirement for a reason. These are the funds that you need to have saved so that you're all right financially when you're in retirement. If you've taken major distributions from them when you're younger, you're much less likely to have the resources that you need when you are retirement age. Now, I don't know Josh's financial situation, and so it's possible that there's adequate resources, that all of the proper planning has been done, and everything's okay for him to go ahead and do this. But I do know that too many times, in my opinion, it's seen as a way to get a client access to money without paying the penalty, without really thinking through what's going on. Now, you don't get to randomly decide how much money you're going to take. The IRS gives you three choices. One is a fixed annuitization. The second is fixed amortization. 
and the third uses the required minimum distribution calculation. Now, when I talk about fixed annuitization, I am not saying that we're annuitizing this, like you're going out and buying an annuity. The legal word for stream of income is annuity. So sometimes you'll hear financial advisors use the word, or the IRS or any sort of like a regulating body uses the term annuity or annuitization. They aren't talking about going and buying something. They're talking about creating a stream of income. And on an annuitization, it's based off of your life expectancy much like another kind of annuity would work, and that's the amount you have to take out every single month. If you use the fixed amortization schedule, that's calculated more like amortizing a mortgage, but it's also based on your life expectancy. The annuitization and the amortization will give you different amounts of money, but once it's set, that's how much money you have to take out of your account every single month. The required minimum distribution method uses your account balance from the year before to determine how much money you have to take the next year. So if the account has gone up in value, you'd have to take more. If the account has gone down in value, you can take less. So the RMD method will not lead to absolutely identical payments like the annuitization and the amortization does. You are allowed one time, if you've chosen annuitization or amortization, you can change. You can change to the RMD method. And let me tell you a story to tell you why. Because back in the dot-com age, when stocks were just soaring and suddenly multimillionaires were made from startups that suddenly went public and they had all of this money on paper, a lot of people in their 30s thought this would be a really great thing. Let's access our IRA now. It has so much money in it, we couldn't possibly need it all. And then the crash happened. And remember, you've made a guarantee that you're going to take out that much money every month. And in some really awful cases, there wasn't the money to take. So when you use the RMD method, you use the account balance from the year before. That lets you downward adjust just in case you've had a disaster, just in case you do not have enough money to be able to take the entire distribution that you thought you were going to be able to use. So the biggest issues with this are the requirement of taking the money. You also can't take out more money. Once you set this up, it's all the money you get. I know someone one time who wanted to take more money out in a month. They had a really pressing need. They weren't able to do it. So you close off all of your options when you do a substantially equal periodic payment. And you're stuck with this until you're 59 and a half or it's been five years. If you have another source of funds, you're probably better off using it. Although there's cases where this is a good idea. You want to talk to your financial planner and really look at your options 
really be sure that this is what you're doing. My biggest fear is that by taking these payments out when you're younger, you don't have enough money saved for when you're older. Because usually the reason you need the money is because you don't have enough money now. That happens. It happens for a lot of weird reasons. It's not a bad thing, but it might be an indication that retirement's going to be really tough. So be very cautious before you take a bet that you don't really know what you've done. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Well, one more time, I just can't believe how fast the show has gone. So here's your takeaways for the week. Don't let the volatility make you crazy. It's more important to look at the actual returns and remember that everyone's a little stressed. Understand your investments and their taxability and what any funds are invested in. And if you're thinking about taking early distributions from your IRA, make sure you know the rules. Have a great week. You may submit personal finance questions to the Ask Peggy Facebook page and learn more at PeggyDoviak.com. And remember, prosperity is so much more than money.